This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, and let me tell you what we're going to be talking about today. What happens if the cost for Hamilton's LRT balloon because of inflation? Will the provincial government still cover the overruns, as they said? Donna Skelly, MPP for Flamborough-Glanbrook, will be joining us to talk about that. We're going to talk about kids and school. There are now reports of tangible evidences that kids are being affected by all the weirdness that's gone in education. What should be done with that? The cost of cars? If you've been shopping for one, you know this. They have gone crazy. We will dive into that. We're going to talk about the women's hockey game and other Olympic matters. We're going to be talking about the coverage of the Olympics. And we are going to be talking about what happens if a rumored story, or is a rumored story, possibly true that says the Queen is about to give the crown to Prince Charles. Could that possibly be true? Stick around. We've got it all coming up. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. You know, you've experienced this. You uh, have been to the store and recognized that everything costs more today than it did a couple months ago. Quite a bit more than it did a year ago. More than it did two years ago. That's, That's inflation. That's what happens. That's what we're in right now. And there's probably reason to believe, you can probably be confident, that things are going to cost more a year from now. Experts told us initially that this inflation was going to be transient. Now, a bunch of experts are saying, well, it might stick around a little longer than we thought it was going to. That's going to affect things. On that list of things it could affect is a $3.4 billion LRT in downtown Hamilton. If inflation stays at, let's say, 5%, it's a little higher than where we are, but if inflation hangs around 5%, uh, that's $200 million more to do the same work. And each percentage point above that, if it was to go that way, another $34 million, give or take. And that's not including all the other cost increases that come along with construction projects that have something to do with inflation or just to do with raising prices to make profits, whatever else. How is this going to affect our LRT? Donna Skelly is the MPP for Flamborough-Glenbrook. She joins us now. Donna, thanks for the time this morning. Good morning. So my understanding of this is that the agreement was when the LRT, the last LRT deal was agreed to, the province will cover cost overruns, whatever they may be. Is that still the case? Well, I, it, it is, but it uh, there certainly isn't unlimited. I mean, we're talking about an unprecedented time, not only, as Scott, as you mentioned, is the cost of purchasing goods and, of course, construction materials soaring. I've never seen an inflation uh, like this. Uh, but we're also seeing delays, and that also adds to cost overruns. We have, um, again, we have a challenge getting construction materials. We also have a challenge accessing hiring training and hiring labor. So as these delays and as this inflation continues to, uh, to grow, we will see an inflated cost. The province is on the record for saying it will cover uh, cost overruns, but they're not unlimited. So if, if it's, you know, if it comes in, let's say that 5% that I talked about comes in and it's another couple hundred million dollars or more, does that, does the government simply write the check or does it say, you know what? Yeah, we'll cover that, but you're also going to have to find some savings here to bring the cost down a little bit. I think we're going to have to cross that bridge when we get to it. But my concern is at what point do we say, is this, you know, is this going to become a $4 billion project? Is it going to become a $5 billion project? And if so, should should the city eventually um, be asked to 
to contribute some funds towards this project, or do we look at a, 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 a scaled-down version of the, the track? If it, I can't see the province with the amount of challenges that we face financially going through COVID, wanting to give the city of Hamilton, the only city in the province, an unlimited number of, of uh, tax dollars to build an LRT, I'm sure that they will step up at one point. Now, I have to tell you, this is all speculative. It's all based on an article that was in the Hamilton Spectator. So these discussions are certainly not happening right now. As it stands, everything is a go. Uh, the mayor is still very committed. He just mentioned it just yesterday in our announcement in the city with uh, Minister Calandra on long-term care. He reinforced his commitment to make sure that the LRT gets built. Our government has not wavered on that. The federal government has not changed its opinion or its commitment to building the project either. So this is really just a result of a pro of a, a, a published article in the Hamilton Spectator. Having said that, it is true. It is real. We will see escalated costs. But a contingency is built into the original estimate. I'm sure when they were coming up with the $3.4 billion figure, they recognized that we're going to have challenges moving forward. It was prior to COVID, but Regardless, there is a contingency built in all of this. Let's just keep our fingers crossed. I doubt it's going to happen, but let's keep our fingers crossed. It can be built for that amount of money. Let's also remember that the original figure that I was uh, dead set against was $800 million. We're sitting at $3.4 billion and growing. Um, you know, maybe it's not just about how much money are we going to throw at it, but is this really value for a dollar? And again, that's a discussion that I am not part of. It's a discussion that is not happening as it stands. This project is moving forward, uh, but we will see escalated costs in um, building the entire project as it sits today. I was really interested in one thing you said a few moments ago, a lot of things you said, but one thing you said a moment ago, which was maybe at some point, if this cost continues to rise, the city has to be asked to contribute. I mean, that has been, and you know, because you were on council, that has been the absolute non-starter of non-starters that, that councillors, a number of them have said the second that we are asked to pay any capital cost for this, we're out. I mean, if that were to come in front of city council, that would be an uproar. It probably would, but again, uh, and I'm not suggesting that that conversation has happened at the provincial level. I'm just saying at what point does the city uh, have to step in and, and provide some funds. If this continues to escalate, and I, I it could, it, it may very well because of the unprecedented uh, rate of inflation that we're experiencing right now, the city may be asked to contribute something, hmm. which isn't uh, that realistic because every other city that has an LRT is throwing something into it. Uh, we only have a few seconds, but you know it's it's uh, almost unfathomable that I'm having to ask this question again, but could you, could you imagine the LRT being an election issue in both the provincial and or municipal elections again coming up. We thought we were done with this, but it sounds like this may be back on the table as a topic. Absolutely. It should be. It's never really been on the table on, on the municipal level. Never really. It's certainly not at $3.5 billion and growing. Uh, there was an initial cost of $800 million, but this price tag and the, the even the route that we're, we're dealing with right now was never truly uh, an election issue. Could it become an election issue? Absolutely. You have to remember as a province um, and as a, a provincial uh, member, we have committed to this, but the decision whether the, the city moves forward really is, is the city's decision.
Donna Skelly, MPP for Flamborough Glanbrook. Thanks for the time today. Appreciate it. Anytime. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The education system has been in a flux for the past couple of years. I think that's a fair description of it. We've had students off school. We've had students learning remotely. We've had students wearing masks, students not socializing. It's, it's been an incredibly strange time. And now we're hearing reports of tangible effects this may be having. There was a professor in Alberta who studies education who says there's now evidence students in grade one and two there, and that's his area, uh, are reading at a level a year behind where they should be right now. I want to bring in Annie Kidder. She is the executive director of People for Education. Annie, so thank you so much for the time today. Appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm no expert on this one, but when I hear all the stuff that students have been going through and teachers have been going through, this kind of thing where there is a real effect, it sounds kind of predictable. Would you agree with that? Um. Yeah, I think it's a good point. It's like, you know, it's when you want to just kind of go, yeah, duh, of course, it's had a huge impact on students. I mean, it's had a huge impact on all of us. But you can imagine for kids all different ages, um, the amount of disruption, the amount of insecurity, the um, feeling of anxiety, but also uh things changing constantly. I'm in school, I'm out of school, I'm yeah. learning online, and I'm five. Um, yeah, it's had a huge impact on kids. And you say all of us. And and that's where this thing gets really interesting, because this study that was done in Alberta was on these young children. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we can extrapolate this across all other grades, but uh, on the same time, by the same token, I don't know how we would expect that older students have somehow kept up magically when others haven't. And I think it's really important that we define what we mean by kept up, too. Okay. So um, it, I, I think the one of the problems right now is, A, we don't have very much information, um, but we're going to have to be careful about not just focusing on one thing, you know, so not just going, hmm, kids in grade eight have lost a month of math or whatever. And I'm not saying people are saying that specifically, um, but so there's school is about more than. Um, you know, just gathering in information and getting it stuck in your head. It's about a whole, whole um, bunch of different things. Sorry, technical term, a bunch. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's it, there's a lot of learning that goes on by the process of learning. So you learn about collaborating. You learn about checking your ideas and thinking them through and trying them again. You learn about um, uh, thinking creatively about something, uh, you learn to take something you've learned in one area and apply it to another. So there's a whole raft of skills and competencies that you acquire in the process of learning and in the process of going to school. And I think what's worrying is, is yeah, how, how much has been lost? Who's been more affected than who else? And there have, there's been quite a bit of evidence that kids in the early grades, that reading for one thing is something that where um, there is a loss for those kids in the early grades. And, and here's my real concern with this. And once again, I stress, I am not an education expert by any stretch. So I'm, I'm going by just logic, I guess, or gut feel here. In any year, you're going to have kids who excel. You're going to have kids who fall behind. You're going to have kids who hold the mean and are right in the middle there. But when you're going through all this stuff, you're still going to have kids who excel 
And you're still going to have kids who I guess are holding where we would expect them to be. But the, the, the gap I would think has to be bigger because those kids that are falling behind naturally probably could fall way further behind because of all these disruptions. Yeah, I and I'm not sure if I'd use the word naturally, because I think that what has happened in the pandemic is that it has exposed the cracks. So you are right. And there is evidence of this, that it's it's amplified the inequity. It's or it's actually exacerbated it. It's made it bigger so that the kids who were already um, struggling or maybe more likely to struggle because they were dealing with a lot of other challenges. Um, are we're less likely to have all of the other kinds of supports around them in the pandemic that might sort of, uh, you know, mitigate, might kind of soften the blow of the pandemic. So the worry is that those kids are, are yeah, kind of doubly disadvantaged mm-hmm. by the pandemic. So you're right about the growing gap. Yep. So what do we do with that then? Because we don't, as a, as I understand it, we don't as a system, fail kids. We don't even use that word now. We wouldn't hold them back very often anymore. Um, but if we are just pushing kids through who are in that group that have fallen way behind, are we actually doing anything to help them or are we just making it worse for them? Well, that's where I'm not, I'm not sure it's a good idea to kind of hive them off either, because I think I th- it's so scary. I think I think this. Hmm. I'm not sure anybody is okay. And I think that's what's worrying about. So we just did a scan where we looked across the country. And really, um, there are a few places where they have some kind of sort of vision or, uh, you know, they've written out some goals for thinking about how kids are doing. Ontario is not one of those places. Um, and what there doesn't seem to be anywhere is that plan. And it's not a plan to do necessarily withholding anybody back, but a plan to really assess uh, how kids are. So how are they doing in various um, you know, academic subjects? How are they doing in terms of their sense of them, themselves and their well-being? And then addressing that. So it takes time and a little bit of messiness, but I'm not sure it's, you know, well, I'm, I am sure it's not a matter of just going, okay, you're actually going to have to repeat grade eight. It's much more a matter of making sure there's, there's flexibility now in the system to to deal with, it goes back to your question at the beginning, that there really has been a pandemic. It really has had a huge effect. And we have to recognize that in school. And I think that there's a tendency, and maybe in our lives there is too, to just go, okay, let's just, you know, keep going as if this isn't happening. But it has happened and it's happened to kids. Um, and it has had a big effect. But it's so it's, to me, it's not as simple as, um, you know, you're you're not going to pass grade eight math or grade two reading. It's more how are we how are we truly understanding uh, where kids are and then making a real plan for how we address that. Annie, I'm already out of time, so I'm going to oh, make sorry. you have to answer this in 15 okay. seconds. But is there <laughs> is there any way to do that within the time frame of the students who are in school now? Even if we come up with a plan, can we fix this before this cohort is done school? Yeah, but it means acting now. So we have to assess them now, understand where they are now, and make a plan to address uh, where the kind of gaps are. It is, uh, it is, it is absolutely a, a conundrum that a lot of people are trying to work on. It's, uh, it's not an easy one. Annie Kidder, Executive Director of People for Education, very much appreciate the time today. Thank you for this.
Thanks a lot, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. If you were wondering, yes, uh, Canada beat the U.S. 4-2. to two, We're down 2-1 to one and then came back and scored three in a row. And so Canada finishes the round robin perfect, now waits to find out who they're going to demolish in the first round of the playoffs. I want to bring in Mike Stubbs, host of London Live on 980 CFPL and the London Knights play-by-play announcer. Mike, how are you this morning? Excellent. How are things going, Scott? Things could not be finer, Mike. I got to tell you, we're uh, we're up. The coffee is hot, and uh, and hey, you know what? When when Canada wins, we're we're happy, no matter what it is. We're always happy. Absolutely, we saw some good performances overnight for us, but during the day in Beijing, and I think that's highlighted by exactly what you just pointed to—a four-two victory by Canada's women's team that will set them up not too bad in the quarterfinals. They should play on Friday. The women's tournament is kind of strange. You can look at the two groups and think, okay, well, you better finish top four or top three in one of those groups to move on. No, 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 they don't do it that way. All of Group A. All of Canada's group makes it through to the quarterfinals and then three teams in Group B. So Canada's set up to face either Switzerland, Denmark, or in a remote way, China, but probably not in the quarterfinals, likely on Friday. And Mike, you know, this was, I really think this was important yesterday, not only for them to win, but there has been over the last week, uh, again, and this is not something that is new There's been criticism of the women's hockey tournament at the Olympics because Canada and the States have both been just pulverizing everybody. And once again, the criticism has arisen that this is not a competitive sport right now. It sure is with Canada and the States, and we saw that last night. And I think that game was enormously important to sort of as a palate cleanser for people again to look and go, this is how women's hockey can be if the other countries would invest some of the money and put some of the same time into it that Canada and the States are, because those other games have become almost useless. I mean, they should almost be forfeits in some cases because you know the outcome way before the game is ever played. Well, and this has been the situation in women's hockey for a while. Look at Canada's opening game. One of the biggest stories to come out of it was that Melody Daou took a hit against Switzerland and is now day-to-day, and she's a very important part of Canada's you know, roster. But at the same time, Canada won that game 12-1. So, yeah, there's not a lot that is in doubt. Even when Canada plays Russia, they had to wear masks the entire game. Russia took theirs off in the third period because Russia had had, uh, you know, a, a COVID issue, let's call it. It's difficult to know exactly what it was. Canada wore their masks the entire game. Russia took theirs off for the third period, but it, it was never close. It was never close. So, yes, this one was close last night. Canada scored in the opening period. Brianne Jenner's having just a tremendous tournament. She's now got five goals. She had two last night. Right, or, uh, the United States came back and scored twice. Twice to take the lead in the second period. And then 26 seconds after U.S. did that, Canada tied it. And eventually Marie-Philippe Poulain had a penalty shot to kind of seal it. It was it was a good game. And the good thing, the nice thing, Team Canada and Team USA kind of wrapped it up by the end of the second period. It was 4-2 Canada after two. That's the way it ended. So if you fell asleep, you didn't miss anything. So they were even <laughs> thinking about us back in North America. And I don't, Mike, look, this is not a criticism of Canada's team or the state's team. I mean, look, you if you become excellent at what you do, we're not criticizing you for that. This is more a knock on where are the other countries 
And, and I, you know, I know some countries we're talking places in the world that don't give any attention to women's sports, but some of the other countries that are big players or supposedly big players in women's sports, in women's hockey, they are countries that pay attention to women's sports. They are countries that, that value equality. And, you know, it's not a criticism of Canada or the States. The other countries have to step it up a bit and come back. There was a time when it looked like that was happening and then it seems to have fallen off again. It's time for them to to push it a bit and make this competitive. You're right. Finland has had a rise. And you know what? If you're to look at the third best team in this tournament, it is Finland and it will be for a while. And it's sure, the, it comes down to the money and the programs. It always does. And Canada and the United States have the best programs. They invest. We've got a lot of tremendous players still to come. And other countries around the world, if they were to look at kind of the depth chart of what we have coming up through the system, they would just you know shake their head and think this is just going to continue to be more of the same because it likely will be. And it's going to take a long time time and that investment look at the men's side you can say okay when is slovenia going to be good at hockey they have hockey when are they going to be good how about austria they've been around for a while how about kazakhstan and belarus where are they why aren't they getting up into that kind of elite five countries that year after year compete for gold in whatever tournament it happens to be when the men's side gets going here It'll happen again. You can say Germany has made a lot of strides, but again, they've made a lot of investment. So it does come down to that. Will those countries decide, yeah, let's put the money into it. Let's do it. And they need to, sure, because this is this is something that you've got a lot of young female players playing, but finding that money is is the next challenge. And for some countries, and I just mentioned Kazakhstan and Belarus, and you can certainly throw Ukraine into that, they have a lot of great hockey players, but they don't have that money to sink into their system, to build more rinks, to hire those good coaches. And that's what you need to do to get to the elite level. Uh, very quickly, uh, Mike, we are looking at the medal board right now. Uh, Russian Olympic Committee, can't say Russia because they're officially banned, but the Russian Olympic Committee is in first with seven medals. Canada second right now with six. But then you look down the list and under gold medals, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleventh place overall, but with zero gold medals. The United States. There are some some grumblings going on in the states that this is the longest time in two and a half, three decades of Olympics they've ever gone without a gold. This this is this is strange that the U.S. has gone completely quiet. Scott, Americans like to win, don't they? They like to win, and sure, this is certainly. New territory for them. The games are still long. We still have the rest of this week. We have all next week, but maybe the United States will be looking at some of these early events. Canada won bronze in team ski jumping. Canada's first medal in ski jumping, period. But you didn't see any Americans anywhere near that. And short track speed skating, the Americans don't tend to do very well Mm. in that. And some of the freestyle, usually in snowboarding, they've got no problem. But this year, it it just hasn't been all that fruitful. So I think the Americans events are still to come, but it is, yeah, it's a strange start to look and see exactly where they are. But it's been a great start for Canada from Isabel Wiedemann and Kim Boutin and skating and Mikhail Kingsburg 
Fury in moguls and Max Perot in slope style and then the ski jumping and Mark McMorris picks up another one. It's great. We got to jump in, but yeah, no Canadians are complaining about us being way ahead of the Americans. Let's put it that way. Uh, Mike Stubbs, (laughs) really appreciate the time. Thanks as always. Anytime. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Are you in the market for a new car? Not selling one. I'm not Oprah. I can't give one away as we were joking yesterday. Um, But if you are, I hope you are rich. (laughs) Quite simply put, because the price of a new car in Canada now averages, averages more than $50,000. Makes me think I should have held on to my 99 Tercel rather than giving it away once upon a time. Barish Akurek is the Director of Marketing Intelligence at autotrader.ca. He joins us now. Barish, thank you for the time today. Appreciate it. Good morning, Scott. I look at this number and I just, Barish, I think to myself, $50,000 is an extraordinary amount, isn't it, for a new car? On uh, average? It is, it, is a, it is a lot of money. Uh, you're right. Fifty, fifty thousand. Just we are just over fifty thousand um, dollars as of uh, beginning of this year, and used cars are uh, at around thirty-six thousand dollars. Wow, what, what's going on? I mean, there's a lot of different pieces to this, but what are some of the elements that are contributing to these prices going up this much? Yeah, so we look at it from the the you know uh, supply and demand uh, framework. And uh, we are having issues from both sides. Uh, so on the demand side, there's a lot of demand, which is uh, obviously uh, a, a, a phenomena that uh, started happening in the beginning of the year where um, uh, because of COVID, because of, of health and safety precautions that consumers didn't want to take public transportation and uh, and ride-sharing services, so there's more and more interest in the vehicles. So the demand has increased. And on the supply side, uh, because of all the, I'm sure you've heard of the um, microchip shortages, um, there's less and less microchips available uh, in the market because of different reasons, and therefore less new cars were, uh, uh, were manufactured. So... This demand and supply mismatch uh, caused the uh, uh, caused the prices to go up, and this is where we are right now. We often uh, see things climb in price for the very reasons you're talking about, um, but when the components or whatever else that's required to build them goes down, we don't often necessarily see the prices go back down again. The companies that build them say, okay, we've set this price as the new standard. People have gotten used to this even though it might cost us less, hey, we're just going to leave the price where it is. Do you see the prices of cars dropping when things get back to normal? Or do you think the car manufacturers say, hey, you know what, here's where we are and we'll just leave the prices here and people will pay it? Yeah, definitely. I think, I think again, uh, we're, we're squeezed from both sides of the equation, as I just uh, explained to you earlier. So one, uh, once there's more cars in the market, which has started to happen, started uh, starting uh, at the end of last year. Uh, the production has been ramping up, and we'll start seeing more and more cars on lots. So once that happens, we expect to see prices to normalize and uh, go back to uh, go back to some more stabilized numbers uh, in in the future. 
All right. Well, I mean, that's, that's optimistic. And I hope, I mean, I hope it's right. Cause 30, I mean, look, 50,000 for a new car. And again, we're talking about the average. There's some that'll be more, there's some that'll be less, but that's a lot. But then when you say 36,000 for a used car, Barish, I mean, that's, that's where my brain kind of goes. I mean, it kind of explodes because 36,000 for a used car is unbelievable on average. So, yes. Yeah, so Scott, so just want to make sure that, you know, yes, uh, if you look at the average numbers, uh, they may sound, sound high, but uh, there are still lots and lots uh, of good deals to be had. Uh, we have a bunch of tools on the site where you can see if the price of a vehicle is a good price, uh, great price, or above average. And uh, I, I'm a car enthusiast myself, and I look at the site on a daily basis, and I can assure you that there are tons of tons of uh, good good deals to be had. So uh, if you're in the market. Uh, there's definitely there's definitely opportunities in that for sure. The 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 fact though that the average is there and and I understand what you're saying and it's a very good point that it's not like every used car is not going to be thirty six thousand dollars. We so that's right. that's the average, but that does say though that there's an awful lot of cars that that, that what people are looking for now, or at least a lot of people, are high end cars with a lot of the bells and whistles they are willing to spend because that's what's going to bring the average up. There's got to be a lot of people who are willing to spend on these things. Yeah, no, you're right. So um, we do we do a lot of uh, research to understand uh, what's happening in the market. So one of our findings uh, from these uh, the, the research is that. Uh, when we try to understand this exact uh, same phenomena that you were just talking about, there's more and more interest in uh, larger vehicles. Um, so uh, over t- even before the pandemic, cars and sedans, uh, the, the interest in these vehicles have been declining. So, But uh, with COVID, we see that uh, it's sped up a little bit more. Uh, so uh, consumers are interested in SUVs, compact SUVs, and, and larger vehicles. So, and I think you alluded to it. So, you know, once you look for a bigger and larger vehicle, they cost more money. But when you look at, when we looked at the market to understand what's happening from the macro perspective, what we found out that was uh, up until the beginning of the pandemic, the household savings rate was around like 2.8% on average, going back 25 years. And once the pandemic hit, this ratio went up to 28%. And in the huh. beginning of the pandemic, Bank, Bank of Canada estimated that this amount was around $100 billion. So on average, for those Canadians who have been able to save, uh, they've saved a lot of money. Therefore, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, when, when I have additional money, quote-unquote additional money in my bank account, I tend to spend it. So I think that's partly what we are seeing in the market that, uh, consumers, on average, they have more money, and when it comes to buying a vehicle, uh, they tend to uh, they tend to spend a little bit more than they had uh, than they had originally planned. Barish Akurek from AutoTrader.ca. I uh, appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Of course, anytime. Have a good one. That is uh, interesting that we're talking about SUVs and bigger cars and everything now. I think a lot of people are saying, wait a second, I thought we were getting away from big cars. Isn't everything supposed to be tiny, subcompact electric cars? Well, maybe not. Not yet. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You've probably been watching some Olympics or are probably tuned into them or will be tuning into them soon because, hey, they're, they are on. But these are weird games. 
not only because of the time difference, but also we've got the hosts and most of the broadcasters are now based here in Canada, as opposed to being over in Beijing. They're calling sports thousands of kilometers away. It's unusual because usually we send or they send everybody over there. Are you noticing any difference? I want to bring in Bill Briou. He is a renowned TV critic, an expert TV critic, one of the best TV critics you'll find anywhere. Bill, am I, am I saying this right? Am I, am I getting it so far? Oh, Scott, yes, Scott. Did you get my check? Was it? <laughs> Thank you. Yes, Bill Briou from Briou TV. Um, look, Bill, it, it, are you noticing any difference by the fact that the commentators are thousands of kilometers away? Yeah, there, are, there are some differences. You know, a um, couple of times they've used that weird Drew Barrymore thing where they, you know, beam people from Beijing into the studio in Toronto, pretend they're standing in the same room, sort of like a Star Trek kind of trick or something, but uh, then that's uh, weird. But um, you know what? I have to say, generally, I, I haven't, and I think viewers are kind of used to it by now. We've had several games now, Yongchang and um, Tokyo, you know, where you know, after the time differences have been about the same 13 hours. Um, we've almost been trained to just ignore things and wait till prime time when we have time to watch, and everybody watches on demand now, so I think um, people are sort of generally handling that. Uh, the fact that they're not right there, you know, um, the U.S. has their host right right in, in Beijing. Uh, CBC has Adrian Arsenault and Colleen Jones, a few people. But you're right, most of them are done from here. And you've got um, uh, Kurt Browning, for example, doing commentary on figure skating. Well, it's pretty good, you know. Like, I don't think he misses anything. Um, the photography is exceptional at these games you know it's not like the camera missed something so i don't think it's really that much of a factor it it does make me wonder going forward um if these networks are going to look and say you know it costs us millions of dollars to send these entire armies over to cover the olympics do we really need to spend this money going forward and and, uh, bill if i had to guess i'm going to think that in those boardrooms there's going to be an awful lot of people saying uh, no we don't need to clearly we don't need to yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, it costs so much just to get the rights to the games. Uh, you know, broadcasters don't have the, uh, you know, deep pockets they once had. So they're, I'm sure they're looking to cut corners. And uh, But we've seen this as well on coverage of uh, Major League Baseball. You know, I mean, the, the play-by-play people, the color commentators, they're not at every stadium anymore, especially during the pandemic uh, with COVID safety protocols and everything. Um so there's been a couple of years now where I'm sure networks are looking, taking a hard line at, do we really need to do this live again? You mentioned the time difference, and you're right. Uh, Pyeongchang was certainly a time difference, uh, and we dealt with that. But I, I do wonder still, when you're talking about sports, sports seems to be the one thing that people want to watch live. And does it have an impact? Is this time difference hurting in any way, or are people just saying, well, what it is what it is, and I know it's time different, so I'm just going to watch it differently than I would like to? Yes, I hate to be the devil's advocate this morning. I, I just, I don't know. I mean, if you look at the ratings so far, and they're starting to come in, um, CBC, for example, they they had the people wanting to get up at 6.30 Friday morning at 7 o'clock, they could start watching the opening ceremonies. And then it was all repeated again in the evening in prime time. Same with NBC. Um, more people watched in prime time. You know, it's just more convenient. And um, 
I think something like the opening ceremonies, not live isn't the big factor. You're right. I mean, if you want to know who won the women's hockey game, you, you probably wanted to see it live, even though it was very late. Um, so, um, in some ways, the networks get a, a double hit. You know, CBC had close to a million people watch the opening ceremonies spread out over CBC, PSN, Sportsnet, CBC News Network. You know, you, if you add it all up, about a million watched at night and about 800,000 watched in the morning. Yeah, I'll be really interested to see. And I don't know if we're going to get the specific numbers, but you're right. The women's hockey game was very late last night. When people woke up this morning, we were talking about it. I should have probably said spoiler alert before doing that. I wasn't even thinking. But um, I'll be interested to see when they replay it. And I assume they will replay it during the day today if it will have a big audience or having known the results of people will go, okay, I, I, I don't need to watch this whole thing. And that's the that's the challenge always with sports, right? If you know the outcome, the three hours preceding seems to sometimes become less important. Yeah, that's absolutely true of any game, any sport. Uh, and it just depends on the event. Like, you know, you might have heard that the Russian skater did four quads, and you maybe don't need to see that live now. I think people can literally go on their computer and call it up uh, on, uh, you know, CBC uh, Jam or, or uh, uh, and that way. And, and if you're only wanting to watch a four-minute thing, you know, you may not be staying up till 2 in the morning. Well, the, the hockey, yeah, I guess is different, and um, I don't want to spoil anything for people anyway. I I watched the first period because it was on at eleven thirty or twelve or one or whatever it was. Um, very exciting, but nervous if you're Canadian, and you saw a bit of how tremendous Canada's goalie was. Uh, if it had been on earlier, yeah, I would have stayed up. It was just so late. And if you and we got to run, but if you would, if it had been on earlier, I think an awful lot of people, m- more people, would have stayed with it. And um, but you know what? I mean, you can't do anything about the time difference. Unfortunately, that's that's the that's the basket you've been handed when you choose to go to that part of the world. And same for them when they're over there. When it's here, they've got the same thing. Uh, Bill Bria, we got to run. Thank you so much for this. Always appreciate it. My pleasure, Scott. Anytime. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I saw a story the other day that I, I I didn't really know what to make of. It sounded, on the one hand, completely goofy. And on the other hand, there's a plausibility to it that seems to make some kind of sense. However, I am not the one to try and explore whether this is real or not. Uh, one of the turn to is someone who would. That is Nathan Tidridge. He's not just an award-winning teacher at Waterdown District High School. Uh, he also is the author of six books exploring the role of the crown and the royalty in this country. And Nathan, the story was that sometime next year, the queen is going to essentially hand off the crown to Prince Charles, who will be crowned, and he will then be king of England. I guess the idea being she will still, the queen, will still be alive, but he, she's now up there, 95 years old. Is this even possible within the system, within the rules? Um, it, to be honest, Scott, I would find it highly unlikely. I, I, I couldn't see kind of a scenario like this playing out. I could see something like, um, there is a possibility of something called a regency where the queen would still reign as queen, but the Prince of Wales would be, um, acting in the capacity of, of kind of as the sovereign in all but name. But that would only be in an extraordinary circumstance where the, where the queen herself was, was incapacitated. Uh, unable to fulfill her duties for some reason. Yeah. And, you know, as I say, when I first heard this, I said, okay, this is, 
ridiculous. And then I remembered, yeah, but a Pope did it not that long ago when we said it was right. ridiculous then. So, you know, if you're 95 by next year, she'll be 96. She served 70 years. Do you, is there a point at which she can say, I just can't fulfill this anymore. And you say incapacitated. Could you be incapacitated simply by the demands of the job that you may be healthy, but 96 years old and just can't do what you have to do? I, I think for this monarch, no. I, I, I think she is intent on, 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 on being queen until really her last, her last breath. I mean, her dedication to service. Um, it's just extraordinary. And, and those seem to be the signals that have been, that are being sent in their social media. Um, while at the same time, she is definitely preparing for the reign of her son. And so sending uh, clear signals as to uh, her support of his reign. Um, he is definitely taking over a lot of the responsibilities or the, uh, the visits and things like that that she would normally do. So that is definitely happening. But, um, no, I, I, I honestly, I just can't, I can't see that, that happening of, of kind of the queen retiring. Um, she's, um, she, she gave her an oath and, and she's demonstrated throughout her life that that oath Indeed. is really important and it, it's, it's to the last breath. Could this story though that I read, and there was a number of sources, a number of places where it was written, could this mm-hmm. be reporting that is both accurate and inaccurate, which sounds like a complete oxymoron, but that they are in fact preparing for Charles to be crowned, but that's simply as let's have everything ready because I am 95 and, you know, we don't want to think about it, but she could pass away. And I imagine that the whole process of the coronation is a massive process. So let's make sure this thing is ready to go. Absolutely. Because uh, I mean, she's also queen of of 15 other nations, including this one. And so plans have been kind of uh, been in the works for a number of years, number of decades actually for the succession as to, as to what happens. But I think, uh, you know, in terms of uh, her signaling yesterday that it was her uh, hope that uh, Camilla would, you know, take the title of queen, um, you know, and mentioning, you know, what is important to her and important to her, you know, her as sovereign and as an institution in service. I think she's definitely she's definitely kind of uh, putting the things in place that need to be in place for a, for the next reign. That, that, that that's kind of what they're thinking. Absolutely. I think that that is happening and that's probably where this story came from. Somebody heard, it means somebody time. heard that the queen said, prepare for the coronation and someone interpreted that to mean I'm going to hand the crown off where it doesn't mean that at all. It means this is a massive process. Cause again, I mean, how, how big, how big a task is staging a coronation? And it's a weird question because we haven't had one for almost every, most of people in Canada, most people in the UK, most people in the Commonwealth have not been alive to see yeah. this. I mean, how big a deal, how big a, not a deal, how big a, a process, how big a task is staging a coronation? I would, yeah, I think it's huge because it involves ceremony and it involves uh, symbols and the crown as an institution is not what it was 70 years ago. Um, add to that all the people that were involved in, in designing and running and carrying out the coronation 70, 70 years ago aren't alive anymore, right. uh, except for, except for the queen. And so, um, that adds in a whole new dimension. So it's going to be a very, when it does happen as a ceremony, there's going to be a lot of people watching it because how will it reflect how the crown exists today? Um, you know, the British Empire is long gone. Uh, the Commonwealth is is thriving, but it, it's a dynamic 
free association of states. There are still 15 countries, 15 realms that that have the queen or the, the new king as head of state. So how will that be reflected in that ceremony? I would imagine there's there's got to be a lot of planning and consultation back and forth going on. Is it possible to modernize a coronation or by definition, does it have to be all tradition? I think that I think it is. And that was demonstrated in 52. And, you know, they that was the first one that was televised. And that was yeah. considered a huge innovation at the time. You know, I think the, the show The Crown donated a couple of episodes to it. Um, and it, it was seen as this, this, this major step. And so I think there's certainly ways that it can be done. And it's, it's kind of a balancing act because you're dealing with a ceremony that goes back a thousand years. Mm-hmm. And so you don't want to change it to the point where it's unrecognizable. It has to be true to its, its roots while at the same time acknowledging that we're in, you know, we're well into the 21st century now. And what the crown means to people has changed. It, its role has changed and it, uh, it, it's still significant, but it's changed. And in Canada, it's different than what it means in New Zealand or in, in Britain or in, you know, Papua New Guinea. And so how they will reflect that I, it will be an interesting thing to see. Yeah. Unlike some NFL games, this will not be broadcast, you know, by, by a Nickelodeon as well with sliming going on just for the kids version. There, there, there's right. Yeah. Credibility in this and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It is, uh, look, it's, um, it's a fascinating story. Whether, uh, I tend to think you're right. I tend to think that this means someone misheard something and the queen is just making sure that things are ready to go in case, but mm, we will, um, Hopefully we won't find this out soon. Let's put it that way. Hopefully it'll happen, but uh, not too soon. Nathan Tidridge, really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Anytime, Scott. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.